You're listening to On the Record Online with Eric Schwartzman, where reporters and journalists go on the record about how they use the Internet to cover the news. For the latest trends, tips, and tactics on how the web shapes popular opinion, subscribe to our RSS news feed or visit us online at www.ipressroom.com. Okay, well, thank you for downloading this uh, very special episode of On the Record Online, the official podcast of the 2009 Public Relations Society of America International Conference, which will be in San Diego uh, the 7th through the 10th. Uh, Our speakers on the call today are not speaking at the conference, uh, but I'm very excited to have them nonetheless for this very special episode about Regulation FD. Uh, So what I'll do is I'll introduce our panelists and then I'll kick it off with uh, some questions and we'll just uh, get into a conversation here. Uh, On the line with us we have uh, Brian Lane. He is a partner at Gibson, Dunn & Crutcher, where he counsels companies on corporate governance and regulatory issues under U.S. federal securities law. And prior to that, he was um, United States Securities and Exchange uh, Commission uh, Director of the Division of Corporate Finance for 16 years. Uh, We also have Brock Romanak. He's the editor of the CorporateCounsel.net. Prior to that, he also served at the Office of the Chief Counsel at the U.S. SEC Division of Corporate Finance and acted as counsel to former SEC Commissioner Laura Unger. And uh, we had hoped to have William Lutz, the American linguist and author of the SEC's Plain English Handbook uh, on this call. Unfortunately, he's unable to join us. He will appear uh, separately in an upcoming episode. But uh, we have, um, we're very fortunate to have, as a last-minute addition, uh, Michael Becker. And uh, Michael is the um, VP of Global Disclosure and Financial uh, Disclosure Services at Business Wire. He's been in investor relations since 1996, and he is a recognized expert on Reg FD uh, from the PR standpoint. Uh, so, gentlemen, thank you very much for agreeing to join me, particularly during billable hours. Happy to do so. Yeah, sure. So, first off, uh, Brock and Brian, did you guys work together at the F- at the SEC? Indeed, we did. I I worked for Brian. Okay, so you guys were there at the same time. So, let's kick it off with just a, a very basic question here for those of our listeners who may not know. Brian, what is Regulation Fair Disclosure, and why was it enacted? Um, it's a, a disclosure rule that was adopted in the year 2000. It was to address some of the problems that had developed over what was called so-called whispered earnings, which had become very popular, especially in the 90s uh, during the Internet bubble, um, but had existed before that, uh, which were notions that when a company was doing exceedingly good or exceedingly bad, more likely the latter, uh, they felt the need to communicate it to someone so that there wouldn't be as big a surprise, uh, and that the sort of the what companies get punished for are surprises. So if you could talk to some analysts, you know your sort of favorite analysts, and tip them off a few weeks before you're going out the door with earnings, that things aren't going as well as planned. For example, instead of making 45 cents uh, this quarter, we're only going to make 35 cents. The thought was that you would, you know, meet with the analysts first, give them the tip, they would adjust their research downward, 
Um, they'd issue new research, which shows, you know, which made their customers happy because they were glad they subscribed to this research uh, and got the inside view. Uh, and then the, the stock price would suffer somewhat because of the new research that came out the door. But then, you know, two weeks later, when the company announced its actual earnings were only 35 cents, it would say that it had met the, con- the new revised consensus numbers, the 35 or 34 cents, actually beat it by a penny. Uh, and so then the company would not be punished because they had met their earnings targets. And so there had been some sort of game, you know, that had been developed around there. A number of people were concerned, brought it to the attention of the SEC, uh, that there were, you know, calls made by the officers of public companies with a bunch of analysts on a call in which the press was not privy or invited to it, and the general public was not invited to it. So the notion was there needs to be a rule somehow that forces companies to disclose the information to everybody at the same time. And that's what gave birth to the rule. Brock, it's called regulation fair disclosure. Why is selective disclosure unfair? Well, that's just the model of the federal security laws in our country in that, uh, you know, insider trading is is a bad thing. In some countries, actually, insider trading is permitted. But uh, to have trust in the markets... Uh, A long time ago, uh, our country decided that the the, uh, regulatory regime would be to prohibit insider trading. So that's what the regulators have come up with, a scheme in this case of of trying to ensure that material non-public information, when it is made public, gets broadly disseminated so that everyone's on a, a relatively level playing field. And, and is this something, I mean, as you said, Brian, this is something that is a result of the Internet, the, the idea that for the first time individual investors could trade alongside institutional investors. And so if the institutional investor got the tip in front of the, in, in front of the individual investor, they'd have an unfair trading advantage. Is that the, the idea? Yeah, and I don't think it was driven by the Internet. I said that it was became popular in the Internet bubble, you know, where in the late 90s in particular, though it existed before, frankly. But it really became red hot when Internet stocks, if you remember in the 90s, if you would miss by a penny, the stock price would fall 20%. You know, you said you're going to make 45 cents and you made 43, you know, the stock would get hammered and the analysts would hammer you and everything for surprising them. Uh, and that was, we were in a bubble at that time. So your stock, you know, it wasn't so much about whether you made money or not. It was whether you made the estimates or not. And uh, it was kind of a little bit of crazy at that time in, in the 90s. And so it's not a phenomenon of the Internet. It was really more a phenomenon of the bubble. Now, my background is public relations, not investor relations, but my experience has been uh, in, in, in the PR industry that most people believe that, um, that the only real way to satisfy regulation fair disclosure is by distributing that disclosure first in a press release over a paid newswire service like Business Wire. Michael, is that the case? Michael, did we lose you? And we did. I guess we might have lost Michael on the call. Let me just see something here real quick. We may just have to proceed without him, uh, which is unfortunate. Yes, we have lost him, but uh, what we'll do is we'll schedule a separate discussion uh, with Michael after this call. How, how about that? Um, so let's 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 direct that back to you, Brian. Um, do you have to distribute uh, information over a newswire service first to satisfy Reg FD? 
Well, that was the model, and now there's some question whether you need to continue to do that in light of some new guidance the SEC issued last year. But the SEC struggled with a philosophical point, which everybody can understand. If you're going to put information out to the public and say, okay, it's now fair, it's now public, it's like a jump ball. We threw this information out. Now small investors and big investors have an equal opportunity to get it. What should you give credit for? And so that's what came, the debate became push and pull technology, okay? That a website, for example, is pull technology. You don't know there's anything there. You have to kind of go to the website and pull it for yourself. Um, and push technology is like an email. You know, someone sends you an email saying, oh, by the way, here's what our earning results are. Um, so you don't have to go search for it. The company pushes it to you, and therefore, you know, the, the commission's view in 2000 was push technology is what we want. And, and press releases accomplish that, right? Because the, the company puts a press release on Business Wire or somewhere else, and the whole world gets it because the news media picks up the press release and, and it pushes it to the public through all their media sources. And therefore, a company gets credit for making something public, the, the proverbial jump ball. The challenge was always the pull technology. And this kind of goes in answer to your question, Eric, about whether, um, you know, you have to do a press release. Up until 2008, the feeling was, yes, you do. And even today, it still dominates uh, the thought because the worry was if you put it on the website, is it, you know, a tree falling in the forest that nobody, you know, observes? And are you only tipping off those investors who happen to be trolling your website at that moment that you put up the press release? They're the ones that get the inside skinny, and then they run out and trade uh, on that information. And you said, well, hey, we put it out for anyone and everyone. You know, why isn't that fair? And the SEC said, no, you need to... You need to do more. People need to know that they've got to come to your website. Or when you put something up on your website, there's a, an alert. And a lot of websites have that, as you know, that, that you can subscribe to a corporate website where they will send to you a press release whenever it comes out, and it will just forward it to you. That would be push technology. That certainly would satisfy uh, the SEC in some ways. But, again, you have to sign up for that uh, in order to get that technology. So that's the debate of why you always use the press release. Now, uh, Brock, in uh, your fall 2008 uh, issue of InvestorRelationships.com, you wrote a story uh, headline, Our Roadmap, How to Comply with the SEC's New Regulation FD Guidance. And I'd like to read a quote from there. Uh, You wrote, when the SEC first adopted Regulation FD in mid-2000, it acknowledged that companies may be able to rely on the web to disseminate disclosure at some point in the future, but emphasized it was not likely to be considered sufficient yet. Now that day has come. So is that day here? Can we satisfy Regulation FD uh, with the use of company websites for corporate disclosures? Right. I mean, the SEC in that in that guidance put out a, a, a series of eight non-exclusive factors to consider when companies want to go the online-only route. Um, I think the problem for a lot of investor relations officers right now is getting uh, confident confident that they can satisfy those eight factors. And so, I I think there are companies out there already relying on the SEC's guidance. Um, I'm not sure they're making it because, ironically, I think the companies that would like to do without the expense of a press release tend to be the smaller companies, but yet uh, the factors that the SEC uh, has provided in their, in their interpretive guidance tend to, be the fa- tend to be factors that would make it possible for larger companies really to rely on the, 
on the guidance to do it, and it would probably be pretty challenging for a smaller company to rely only on, on its online uh, posting of information. Well, let's take a step back for a minute. Effective August 7, 2008, the SEC issued commission guidance on the use of company websites for corporate disclosures. First off, explain to me, Brian, what is commission guidance? What does well, that mean? It's, it's basically not rulemaking. If you want to have a jaded view of that, Eric, is they didn't feel like they needed to do rulemaking, which takes years to do. And instead, they basically just interpret existing rules. They say, here's the rule, here's how we're interpreting it. So that's what the guidance is. Guidance can come in different levels. It can come from the commission, meaning it's from a release, and that's what this guidance was in 2008, August 2008. It could come from the staff. Sometimes the staff posts guidance on the website. If you go up to the SEC.gov website and click on, you know, corporation finance, you'll see a bunch of interps, including on uh, Regulation FD, of what the staff. Now, that's not the commissioners, the five presidential appointed commissioners, but that's the staff that sort of keeps an eye on the regulation, what their interpretations are, which is a little bit more informal. So hopefully that has, it's just an interpretation by the SEC of their own rules. So, um, this is really a question about the sequence by which quarterly earnings information is released to individual and institutional investors. Is it legal under certain circumstances to release material information that could affect the value of a publicly traded company's stock first on the company's website? Yes, if it meets the SEC's guidance. And, um, and, and, and what, what is that guidance? Um, I'm actually uh, looking at page 20 of this um, SEC-issued commission guidance on the use of company websites for corporate disclosures. I will have a link to this uh, filing. It's a PDF in the show notes. And they actually list a bunch of different criteria by which uh, it would be considered permissible, right? And this is something that you reviewed in this, this article we're talking about, Brock. Um, I'd like, to, I'd like to, if I could, I'd like to read uh, a paragraph from page 18, paragraph 2. In order to make information public, it must be disseminated in a manner calculated to reach the securities marketplace in general through recognized channels of distribution, and public investors must be afforded a reasonable waiting period to react to the information. Thus, in evaluating whether information is public for purposes of our guidance, companies must consider whether and when one, a company website is a recognized channel of distribution. So let's stop there. What would determine whether a company's website is a recognized channel of distribution? Yeah, I think that's where we get into the murky areas, and that's why companies haven't done anything. One, I, you know, the SEC's guidance, while well-intentioned, I think still uh, in, in many lawyers' minds that closely follow what the SEC does, it's a little bit still, I think, too murky for them, and they haven't been comfortable because this concept is so new. Um, in, in the article that I wrote, I, you know, I talked about SERP, search engine optimization, which is not even mentioned in the SEC's guidance, but yet, in my opinion, is probably one of the critical aspects for a company to kick the tires and see whether, you know, if they put something on their website, whether their website is, is closely followed enough by the investor community to figure out whether... You know, that's widespread dissemination. So one of the reasons why I think it hasn't been a, a flock of, of companies distributing content this way is, one, I think most major investors are still 
reliant on press releases as a way to get material information. That's how they're comfortable. If not that, uh, a filing of a Form 8K with the SEC, that's another way for investors to know that something really material has happened at the company that, that's worthy of them putting something out. And so, you know, we haven't gotten anywhere near a critical mass of companies just relying on their investor relations web pages to be a, a vehicle of dissemination. One reason is because most companies outsource their IR webpage, the content they have for investors on their website to a third-party vendor. And to be honest, just these IR webpages are, are, are really poorly done. And so investors don't go to those webpages for information. They do rely on third parties to get information to, to figure out how the company is doing. And so just things haven't evolved. It's really too soon also because the New York Stock Exchange had a press release requirement until May of this year, and so even after the SEC put out this guidance, if a company was listed on the New York Stock Exchange, they still had uh, an obstacle with the New York Stock Exchange's own listing standards to still put out press releases. Now the NYC has followed the NASDAQ's lead. NASDAQ did this back in 2002, but basically both of them now say, okay, if the, you know, we follow the SEC's model that if, if it's a Reg FD channel, uh, then if the company complies with that guidance the SEC's put out, then it, you know, we don't necessarily have to put out a press release. From a, a sequencing standpoint, Brian, from a sequencing standpoint, um, if, if, if you had a client and they were meeting the criteria in this guidance on posting information at company websites um, and they wanted to move the press release first – on their own website uh, prior to clearing a wire, or uh, would you be okay with that? W what would your counsel be? Yes, I would be okay with that if they followed it with some push technology, meaning a press release. If they can't call me, though, Eric, and said, well, this is all we want to do, we're going to put our press release on our website, that's it. And then, you know, we're not going to do anything more than that. Then I would be much more reluctant because the standards that the SEC sets, the hurdles, as Brock indicates, are pretty high. And for lawyers to be satisfied that that works um, is, is a problem. Now, it's not just re for reporting quarterly earnings, like you indicated. It's any material event. It could be an acquisition. It could be anything that, you know, would, would lead to... Uh, allegations of insider trading and, you know, that kind of stuff. So you, you're talking about some important news. And if the important news, the only place you're going to place it is on the website, there's still problems with that because then employees are free to trade and everybody goes yippee ki -yay, And, you know, that's not, we're not ready for that. But if you said, look, I really want to premiere it on my website because I want my website to become the first stop for investors, you know, and, and, uh, and then follow it, you know, shortly, minutes, hours later, uh, with a with a press release. I'm okay with that because the SEC did say on this same release that if you put something on your website, even if it wasn't deemed to be public disclosure, they wouldn't deem it to be a violation of FD if that's what you did. You know, that's not selective disclosure. You didn't put it on your website just to tip a handful of people. Um, and so that's probably okay from an enforcement, no enforcement case against you. It still could be frowned on. You know, if you call the, the SEC staff and said, gee, we're going to put it on our own website and the people who visited get it first. And then an hour later, we're going to put it across newswire. Um, you know, they might say, gee, you know, is, you got to really think about that. Is, are you giving an advantage to a small select group of people by doing that? And you need to think about it, which is the government's way of scaring you. 
but I think that uh, you, as long as you didn't let anybody do anything until it crossed the wire and an appropriate amount of time had passed, do anything in the, like in the way of trading or you know talking to to analysts, you know, tipping off a particular shareholder, you're probably okay. But people still will move cautiously in this area. What if you put out a press release saying that you would disclose the earnings information on your website at a certain time, but you didn't actually disclose that earnings information in the press release? And that then, would be okay. You think that would be permissible that could, as well? That could be. That could be okay. If long as you draw, because that's push technology. You're basically telling people that at noon tomorrow, we're going to release our earnings, but only on our website. So if you want to see it, come to our website. That's probably FD compliant. You know, Brock, I think this idea of search engine optimization is a keen one. It's actually what uh, propelled me to set up this call with you gentlemen. Um, you know, I've spoken with a number of different search engine optimization experts, including uh, Lee Oden and Danny Sullivan, both of who have been featured on this podcast, and we'll have links in the show notes to their episodes. And they all agree with, with me that if a company wants to leverage uh, their website as a primary stakeholder relations channel, it's critical that news get indexed and introduced on their domain first and that any inbound links from other websites to that content uh, lead them to their domain rather than the domain of a newswire or a, uh, a paid newswire service or a legit newswire service. And so, you know, mandating the distribution of content through a third-party service does a disservice to companies who may be looking to leverage that news on an archival basis after the fact to bring people to their website where they can either give them information about their stock or, or investing in their company or selling them a product or generating a lead. And, and so, you know, I, I guess, you know, having said that, if you had a, a client that came to you and said, hey, we want to move on our newsroom first. We want our press releases and our information to be there first. We want them to be there first for a significant amount of time so that they get indexed by Google there first, so that people link to them there first before they start linking to a Reuters story or a business wire, a PR Newswire, or any other wire service story that may be out there. Um, what, what, what advice would you give them to do so and, and simultaneously satisfy Reg FT? I mean, first of all, I... I I think that day will come. It, it, it's going to take a while. Uh, luckily, I don't have clients, since I'm now more in the publishing uh, business, so I'm not billing hours. But I agree with you. And for reasons even that you didn't mention, that companies want to build up their IR web page, stop outsourcing it to a third-party vendor, because what's going to happen, particularly starting next year, is that since shareholder activism has really grown and there's a rule change from the New York Stock Exchange that will eliminate broker the ability for companies to use uh, votes at what's called the elimination of the bro uh, discretionary broker non-votes is that next starting next year, the number of votes that before companies could rely on to re-elect their directors that they nominate themselves, those votes are all going away. The unvoted uh, shares normally would then be voted by the broker that holds um, your stock in their account. And in most cases, they always voted those votes uh, with management. So now you're going to start having real annual meeting campaigns, just like the last presidential campaign was waged highly online, and now all, all really all political races are being waged online. You're going to start seeing annual shareholder meetings being waged online. And a good example of this is Target last year. They had uh, Pershing Square Capital Management owned 8% stake, and uh, William Ekman was trying to seek a seat for himself and for their nominees. 
and Target get a, did a really good job with their IRA webpage, making it like a real campaign. The problem for companies that normally don't have IRA, good IRA webpages is when all of a sudden they face that sort of need for a campaign, investors are not going to be used to going to their IRA webpage and they're going to lose that audience. Another example is Kraft right now is, is trying to take over Kegberry, and you'll see if you go to their IRA webpage, they have information up there about their uh, takeover attempt, and so they're sort of waging a campaign too, although they do have a record length uh, disclaimer uh, required because of the different laws of the many countries that the uh, offer applies to. So that's another lot of information you probably didn't need, but uh, hopefully some of it will be useful. You know, Brock, in your article, you t- you actually break it down on the level of usability, and you say that if a page becomes too cluttered, it is less accessible. Uh, Brian, I'd be curious to know if you've seen any any incidents or or or, or heard anything about uh, the SEC actually coming after a company for having a sloppy website. Not yet, but I have have received guidance from the staff that if you want to direct someone's attention to the web, it needs to be a specific URL and not just say, go to our, you know, our, our website at acme.com sort of thing. Um, for example, uh, there is a requirement that you put reconciliations for non-GAAP measures, meaning accounting standards that don't comply with U.S. GAAP. A lot of people use free cash flow and some other kind of measures. One of the rules of the SEC is that you have to have a reconciliation to the U.S generally accepted accounting practices, you can put it on your web page, but they have specifically said you can't just say, well, you can find it uh, on our investor relations page at, you know, Acme or XXX.com, you know, or whatever sort of thing. You have to actually spell out the long URL that they can click on that takes them right there uh, so they don't have to search your website for it. Now, some websites are great, and you can find things real easy. It's very investor-friendly and tabs, and you can get to something in three clicks. But, you know, on some websites, you have to basically go and look at the map and spend 20 minutes to try and find where you could find the online thing. Is there and most any... people don't have... I'm sorry, go ahead. I said most people don't have that patience to do it, frankly. So is there, has, is there any guidance that you're aware of that says that that information needs to be at a company-owned domain? Rather, because, you know, there are so many of these social media services now that will let you set up a company page... Um, if you could do that and maybe purchase a domain of some kind and redirect that domain to the company page of a Facebook page, could you use a Facebook company page as your IR page? Sure. I mean, it, you know, and, and to some to some extent, that's actually happening now. Actually, uh, in, in coincidental timing, Dominic Jones, who does IR. Web Report uh, blog, which is a great blog, blogged, uh, is it today or yesterday, about companies that are actually using Facebook pages, uh, mostly for corporate, general corporate, perp, you know, business uh, purposes, but some of them are doing it for IR specific. Uh, and he notes in the, in the blog that uh, it's funny the way this happens, but usually if one company in, in a specific industry does something innovative, um, Particularly in the investor relations space, and then other, you know, their their peers want to do the same thing. And so he notes that small mining and exploration companies, and then ter- technology firms of varying sizes, are particularly active in having corporate Facebook pages. I think that's definitely the wave of the future. 
Brian, if you had a client who said, hey, I want to release material information that could affect the trading value of my stock exclusively uh, or fir- not exclusively, first on Facebook, on my Facebook page, would you be okay with that? Only if the general disclosure was immediately behind it. You know, I mean, if it's solely for the purpose of getting people to visit your Facebook page because you wanted to build a sort of the brand that you come here for the first in news or something, uh, then then maybe. But it's got to be it's got to be no real time distance. Even though what I said about putting on the website and what have you, the more remote you make it from the company, uh, you've got to remember the factors that's in the SEC release. Okay. They, they basically say, you know, recognize channel of distribution is important. I mean, the public has to know that where you distribute your information. If they all know that it's your Facebook that they need to go to, well, then I feel more comfortable than you just happen to see, hear about this Facebook phenomenon and the company sets up a Facebook page and nobody sort of knows about it as being one of your established channels of distribution. You start putting up you know, secret information on that kind of stuff, I would be troubled by that. So what about this? This uh, brings up a, a good example, uh, which I'm sure you guys are probably both familiar with. Uh, but Jonathan Schwartz, uh, the CEO of Sun Microsystems, um, was releasing material information that affected the trading value of Sun stock exclusively on his website. And that information often was being distributed on, on, on a blog, which was at sun.com, Jonathan's blog. And it would actually wind up triggering a story next day, often in the San Francisco Chronicle. So it became sort of a custom newswire for Sun. Yet at the same time, you know, he was really pushing the envelope from a Reg FD standpoint. Um, you know, are, w- w- would would that type of behavior today uh, be met with the same resistance from the SEC? If you if you had a client, it's a public company. Uh, CEO's got a blog. Blog is well known. Blog's been covered in a major newspaper before. He's been covered in a major newspaper before. He's got subscribers. He can tell you he's got a thousand subscribers coming to his feed, RSS feed. He's got email subscribers. Now he wants to take material information, uh, maybe it's something about an 8K that they filed, and put it on the blog first. And they want to do that for a day or two. You know, I, I think. You know, doing it back then definitely was risky. I think doing it today is risky. I mean, the markets, we're just not at a point yet where investors are going to start relying on company websites for information. I think the route to go is what Brian mentioned earlier, is, is a summary a summary press release in which it's just really brief, perhaps, saying this. we, we just posted this kind of information on our webpage, and here's a link to it. As long as you're getting something out on the wire, which will save the company a lot of money because the way the wire's charge their clients is by the word, and so it would be a relatively brief thing, but I think you need to get something on the wire out to investors, and so they can know to go look uh, at what someone has done. And, and going back to the Facebook, when, when I mentioned these companies are doing their Facebook activities, I mean, I would hope from their corporate website that when you click on a link that says you're now going, you know, information for investors, that either you're going to the normal IRA webpage, which then links to the Facebook page, or that when you click on that, you're now going to the IRA webpage, you're going to the Facebook page, that somehow when you're at the general corporate website, it's pointing to the Facebook page, not that there's some sort of silo, independent corporate Facebook page that's out there without ever being mentioned on the corporate website. Brian, uh, how does, how does uh, Regulation FD apply to Twitter? And are, do you have clients using Twitter? I mean, 
Talk to us about that. I, I hope not. I hope not. <laughs> uh, it applies the same as to Facebook and to blogs and what. It's just another medium. Uh, it's a shorter number of characters that you can use, but it's basically the same idea, and you can subscribe to it. Now, i, I got to tell you, Eric, we're just talking about Regulation FD, but there's a lot of reasons why I wouldn't allow my CEO or company to be blogging, okay? Other reasons than FD, far more serious reasons. And that's why you're not likely to see, except for Maverick CEOs, any out there blogging. What are some of those reasons? Well, uh, the reasons are uh, to the extent that you're out there commenting, not only do you run the risk of saying something that's material non-public and be viewed as tipping selectively and basically open up your CEO to individual liability under Regulation FD, which could be, you know, lead to serious fines, you also run the other sorts of risks, what we securities lawyers call the duty to update. Uh, for example, uh, on a blog, some, there's a blog that's talking about your company, Company X, and somebody puts up a blog and says, I think the CFO is a crook and is embezzling money. If you just look at the cash that's going away, and I hear whispers inside the company that the CFO is embezzling money. All right, then an hour later, the company or the CEO comes onto the blog and posts, that's not true. The CFO is a man or a woman of great integrity, you know, blah, blah, blah. Then two days later, somebody posts and says, you know, the CEO is stealing money uh, from the company and I've got it from good sources inside the company. And for some one reason or another, nobody sees it from the company or somebody's on vacation and the company doesn't respond to that. Uh, and this is just a very elementary example, but uh, basically, investors could say the company did not deny it. They've denied it when it's false. They didn't deny it this time. Therefore, it's true. Uh, and the stock gets hammered, and the CEO is on vacation, suddenly finds his or her stock in the toilet because somebody on some blog put up some outrageous something or other that was not responded to. So it basically means that your IR person, your PR person, and a lot of your corporate talent at the, in the front office has to be sitting there monitoring the blog. If you're going to engage, you can't engage for one day. You know, it's not like a sports forum where you say you're, how disappointed you were in Sunday's game and then go away for a week, okay? No. You would have, if you're going to engage, you have to be engaged every minute. And you, and you have to deny this or admit that. Or, and then you, by doing that, you could be giving material information. You know, even just admitting, okay, yeah, we found out our CFO was embezzling. You wouldn't do that on a blog because that could be material. You'd have to do that through a press release. I mean, it is just dangerous from a lot of different ways. But, Brian, I mean, these conversations are going on anyway. I mean, whether they happen on the CEO's blog or somewhere else, they're out there. And really, yeah. there are a lot of people in, in PR and IR now who are who, who's, whose job is to get out into these conversations and participate because often misinformation will be fact for whoever's participating in the conversation at that time. So do you think maybe it's, I don't know, maybe naive to think that not having a blog somehow insulates the company from these types of accusations? No, it's activity on a blog, okay? Like if you sponsor a blog on your website, there's an inherent belief that somehow you're endorsing what's on the blog is accurate. But Whether could you have a disclaimer on there? Well, 
You could, you could, and it could help, you know, but you have to understand that the lawyers are paid to think of what the risks are to the company. And so that's why most blogs might be off-site. And then when my clients will ask me, should be engaged, there's no doubt that there's company employees that are blogging and they have, you know, they hide behind pseudonyms and, you know, whatever kind of stuff. That's fine. You can't control your employees. But when you have your... CEO or top person say, there's something I want to respond to, you do so at your peril. Just like companies that are missing earnings one quarter, Eric, I get calls every day, you know, from somebody saying, look, I got a surprise earnings. Should I go out and tip the market? You know, not wait to the end of the quarter. Should I just tip it? And it's like, you can, but once you start doing that, there's going to be an expectation that every time you miss, you're going to alert the market. And then the one time you don't alert the market that you're going to miss because you have a merger you're talking about or other reasons why you don't want to talk, you get sued. And they just walk into the court and they say, Your Honor, here it is. You know, seven different misses. They alerted seven different times. The eighth miss, they didn't. They lied to us. They omitted important information from us. And even though they weren't under the securities law, have to tell us they were going to miss because they had established a pattern of practice of alerting the market that they were going to miss. We can hold this silence as an omission, an actual omission, and you know, sue the company for millions of dollars and win. But couldn't, so couldn't these types of situations be uh, avoided by just having a policy in place that uh, restricts uh, uh, people from blogging about these types of matters? financial matters, matters about earnings, forward-looking statements, just as the press release has a disclaimer, couldn't social media on a website have the same? Yeah, there could be, uh, look, immaterial things. I, I take your question in a different way. Could you blog about stuff that's not important? The answer is yes, because then that's not material. Like, you know, so when's the company picnic? Well, it's going to be here. Or, gee, when's the new model of the car coming out? Is it going to be in August or is it going to be in November? And somebody gets on there and says it's going to be in, in September. And I say, thank you very much. And can I buy your product in the color red? Yes. You know, I mean, clearly the company can engage in that kind of stuff. But certainly, I mean, I, I'm sure you, 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 must, you must admit that there are meaningful communications that a CEO or a corporate official could have with their constituents that would involve finance. Yeah, but it's like, the, the problem is this. When you do it on a blog, it's potentially like a private conversation because the world doesn't know that they're supposed to be tuned into your blog to get the latest and the greatest. And so it's kind of like a private conversation, but worse it's a private conversation. You know, what the fear of the whispered earnings, Eric, is always that at a, we go to the conference, uh, some investment bank sponsors a conference, the CEO goes, you know how these work, and they have a private meeting with, you know, some of the top investors, you know, buy side, and they meet one-on-one, you know, and talk, how's your company doing, whatever. These are very carefully scripted so they don't violate FD, that you don't disclose anything new uh, that's out there. You know, blog is kind of like that, you know. You're saying, isn't this a good tool to use for, like, one-on-one engagement? you know, with some of particular investors. Yeah, it's like having a one-on-one, but let me tell you, one-on-one makes lawyers and IR directors, you know, hair stand on end. You've got to be extremely careful about is what is being said because it's so easy to say something like, you know, how's the quarter coming? Oh, things are looking good. Well, it had to be two weeks before the end of the quarter. Just saying something like things are looking good would be viewed by the SEC as a violation of the law. Because you just somebody. Go ahead, Brock. Um, I mean, this, this is the first time maybe I've disagreed with Brian, but I think uh, I'm agreeing with what you're saying, Eric, and that I, I think a lot of, you know, clearly there are a lot of corporate blogs out there already, and there are a number of CEOs blogging. 
I truly think that you know almost all COs should be blogging as well as even all IR officers should be blogging. Um, if, if they're properly trained in what to say and what not to say and how to do it, I don't think they're going to need a lawyer looking over their shoulder. Occasionally, lawyers should be checking in to make sure they're not doing something that they shouldn't be and sticking to what the, the, the company's policies are. But I think that enough of that has gone on that the art of that is, is in, you know, so far I haven't heard about any um, large problems because of that, unlike um, in the political, in, in the celebrity arena uh, and Twitter. And so on the one hand, you have blogs where you can put things in context and flesh them out. Uh, we have a lot of CEOs blogging. We have a few IRO, IROs blogging, Dell. Is one example, although they recently had their their top IR officer leave, and so Dell Shares blog is not uh, being populated with content. But they, they, you know, if you look at the Dell Shares blog, the IR officers there have blogged now for the last couple of years, and I haven't heard of them uh, getting into trouble except for recently when they accidentally put out the earnings release a little bit too soon. But what you would ha- what happen in you know, particularly if you're going to be blogging about earnings results, is you know you have the earnings call. You have the release, the press release come out, and then, and then the IRO would would blog something. Twitter, on the other hand, there's actually a surprising number of companies uh, twittering about financial issues. And Q4 Web Systems put out a study about a month ago, showing that eight public companies have Twitter accounts, uh, and 44 of those use Twitter for IR. There, I would get really nervous because with 140 characters, it's really hard to put things in perspective. But then again, you have companies innovating. You have eBay already live twittering someone uh, in the IR department while the earnings call is going on. Uh, but again, I, I would stay off the Twitter and stick with blogs because I think uh, the 140 characters is very limiting and easy to, for people to get things out of context. What about Twitter as a channel to extend the reach of content that lives in the IR site? So I've got the press release up. I've disclosed in a way that's reg fd compliant uh and now i want to just tweet out a link to that press release right no brainer i mean everyone should be doing it no brainer so using information more broader that you want to get out there and to get out there quicker uh and so that would be one way to do it but but uh, brian you have made made the point here in this call that um there is there's the interpretation that if that blog or social media site lives on your own domain, you have more responsibility for maintaining its accuracy than if it's on a third-party social media site. I think so. I, I, and you're right. You could. I don't want to sound like you know the Doctor No here of uh, of advancing technology. I think you could put disclaimers and such around it. But you know, plaintiffs' attorneys' lawsuits are just so common against companies that it's forced companies to be defensive because, you know, all a plaintiff attorney has to do is put together some argument that something on the blog was not accurate and it was important somehow to shareholders and therefore that was fraud and they can sue for, you know, claim tens of millions of dollars in damages when they really just want to settle for their, you know, some sort of small amount. And companies just live in a world, unfortunately, where we have litigation that does that and it forces companies to use lots of disclaimers and be extraordinarily careful. It's funny because, you know, after reading, obviously you guys are steeped in this. You've worked at the SEC. You know this world. You, you, you do this every day. I read this um, commission guidance on the use of company websites, and my takeaway was, gosh, as long as you comply with these, no problem. But you're telling me no. People move slowly, and, 
and you know they're not really ready to act on this guidance yet. That's what I'm getting from you. Am I right? That's yes. right. Because it's a sea change in thinking, and so I think, one, the IRLs are going to have to get comfortable with it, and then, obviously, their lawyers. And so I think it's going to happen, but I think it, you know, once, you know, first you have the leaders, like the legal department for Microsoft has, it now has their own blog. I mean, they, so you see some innovation happening, and once people get more comfortable with social media, you'll find out who's doing it right, you'll find out who's doing it wrong, and people get more comfortable with that's the way to go. Um, right now, with executive pay being a hot topic, last year you had the first handful of companies put up basically online surveys for their shareholders to provide input about their executive compensation practices. This year, now we have more companies doing that. Lockheed Martin and Northrop, Northrop Grumman uh, are the latest. And so as time goes on, there will be gradual um, changes in practice, and then all of a sudden you'll have a year where there's widespread use of that practice. Uh, Intel this past year for their annual meeting for the first time had an e-form where uh, shareholders could submit questions that management could address as well as voting during the meeting online. That had never been done before, that piece of it. Um, and so, you know, it could take 10 years before that's a widespread practice. It could be two years. It really uh, depends on what value companies and, and their investors see. I'd like to wrap it up with a final question here. Um, XBRL, uh, the idea that you could somehow break down and distribute your finances in a way that others could readily interpret it, this idea of distributing raw data in a, in a way that others can use it. Um, could, you, could you tell me first, and maybe we'll start with you, Brian, what is XBRL? And then maybe, Brock, you could tell us whether or not you think this could ultimately you know, close the gap. Uh, between company websites and, and companies disclosing exclusively online? Yeah, sure. XBRL is just an advance from XML uh, in your ability to graphics and do data tagging, um, and to put it simply. Uh, what XBRL allows people to do is basically search a document. You know, there's a lot of search engines. Everybody is familiar with various kinds of search engines to look for documents to find sort of things. but even with advances in technology of XBRL, which is now available, um, you got to tag. I mean, in order to search accounts receivable, if you just typed in the word accounts receivable, it would find the two words, accounts receivable, and, you know, that's not helpful. You want to find the, 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 the dollar number. So what XBRL has permitted uh, is permitted, you know, uh, the SEC to impose a regime on public companies to tag accounts receivable as accounts receivable. So what you can do now is you can go into a document and say, I just want to see or the income statement. I just want to see what the income statement from 2007 is. And you can click on it, and it'll take you right there. Then you can also download it into a spreadsheet. You can compare it versus other companies. And basically you have you know, spreadsheets that you can create of your own custom design uh, to do comparisons of financial statements, and that's what the big advance offers. I mean, I've got to think, if you're serving up a raw data feed with all that information that can be flexed by investors, I've got to think that satisfies Reg FD. Brock? Well, I, I come at it from a little bit of a different perspective. I think the real value of XBRL is for particularly larger companies. I used to work at Lockheed Martin, where you have many different business units, and the ability internally to tag data and then get that information together 
it'll be much easier for the company to know when, you know, what the results of the quarter looked like and potentially file your, your 10Q your, and put out your press release much quicker. In terms of value for investors, I still remain, I need to be convinced more. I really get concerned about people uh, doing these comparisons with numbers without reading the entire financial statements, without looking at the footnotes, without looking at the real context of those numbers, particularly also in the executive pay area, which is uh, the database that the SEC put up sort of as a pilot to, to, for people to compare pay numbers uh, of, of top executive officers of different companies. It's just hard without looking at the context of the numbers to really know what they mean. And so to the extent it's a shortcut for analysts and the major investors that bother to, to delve into fundamentals and not just watch uh, Jim Cramer on, on Mad Money, um, you know, they're going to still have to read the entire SEC filing to know what's going on at the company. So I, I worry about people relying on the numbers through XPRL as, as a crutch. Well, gentlemen, thank you very much for taking time out of your day to do this call. I, I greatly appreciate it. Thanks, Eric. You've been listening to On the Record Online with Eric Schwartzman, where reporters and journalists go on the record about how they use the web to cover the news. For the latest trends, tips, and tactics on how the web impacts corporate reputations, subscribe to our RSS news feed or visit us online at www.ipressroom.com.